<clears throat> there goes not uh, the uh, theme music not going. Of course. All <laughs> right. So it's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. This is the show for folks who know that Lex Luthor's claims of West Point scholarship and stabbing a person are crap. So, <laughs> yes, <gotta> oh. <laughs> um, so tonight we have a special first-time guest. Uh, before I introduce him, though, I want to introduce my co-host, Alana. How? What's happening, Alana? Hi, I'm back. I'm I'm slightly covered in newsprint, uh, more so than usual from touching so many different copies of newsprint-based comics, which is beyond my normal ken. Um, but I'm, I'm learning and growing as a result, and I'm, I'm trying not to leave any residual stains on my keyboard, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> All right. It's so, exploring into unknown territory for me today. Nice. Unknown territory is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, what well, makes things fun. All right. So uh, we'll get to our guests because we have tons of stuff we want to discuss and we're going to have a great discussion about indie small press comics. Uh, since 2002, New York cartoon, cartoonist Daryl Io has self-published many comics, web comics, anthology stories, and comics criticism. Uh, his most known work, Little Garden, has evolved and grown into, and through several permutations, can be seen in its current form at littlegardencomics.com. Uh, he's a commenter, blog, uh, blogger, talking about comic fandom. Um, he's also seen the growth uh, from the first Brooklyn Comics to the Graphics Festival, or the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival, to the current Comics Art Brooklyn, which uh, took place this past weekend and looked fantastic from all the posts on Facebook that I saw. Uh, so we're going to be talking like a whole bunch of stuff, but really the big focus is indie small press comics and Daryl's career. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. Thank you. So uh, one of the first questions we always start in um, that I think it's interesting to hear from creators is you know how did you start creating comics you know was that something you you always wanted to do and how did you go from you know being kind of this uh you know a fan or making comics yourself to actually going out and um you know selling them and going to cons and being more of a, a professional comic creator well i had uh i had comics um in my early teens or tweens and then teens. And I didn't really have a strong interest in anything academic. So I just sort of latched onto that as something that I'd want to do when I grew up, even though even as a kid, it seemed pretty unrealistic. Then, um, uh, as I got older, I got access to different, more and different comics and they started to expand beyond the, the superhero comics that were most readily available. And the more I gained, the more I just I didn't stop liking things so much as I just added on to the things that I liked. And then um, until I realized that uh, there was sort of like a, a, an equilibrium where I was trying to, I was trying to attain this level of, uh, I suppose you would say professionalism to by the time I reached adulthood and Instead, there was. I just discovered there were more different types of comics, and that way, uh, it was. It was more like the way you're doing things could be fine as is. Just you know, which is good because you know it gives you more confidence to uh, actually make stuff rather than saying, "Oh, it's not good enough." It's not like 
this stuff that's being put out here, you, I started to realize there's just many, many different ways to do things. And so I just started making them when I basically figured out the, uh, uh, the basic instructions of how to construct a mini comic. I said, okay, I'm doing it now. Hmm. So for, for the mini comics, I think, you know, it's it's fascinating because you see so many different people creating them, and we were kind of talking about uh, SPX before we came on the air. And one thing I've noticed is that there's definitely an evolution. You can see some creators one year bring back uh, mini comics the next year that are like you, they've clearly learned something over that year in constructing it. Um, was that something you kind of like self-taught? Did you get people to help you? Like, what actually helped you kind of you know figure out how to actually create your own mini comic? Um, well, back in, back in the days, uh, Wizard Magazine used to have these instructional sections, columns in every issue, and once, uh, Jim Mafu did a section of how to create mini-comics, I've basically been making mini-comics the exact same way ever since that article came out, so that part never, never really changed for me, but then everything else is just sort of like, uh, sort of absorbing new not new, but new to me, artists as I as I continued on my explorations throughout high school, college, and post college, and you know just sort of absorbing influences and some of it after after the initial thrill of being into a certain type of art. It, after I get over that, some of it is retained and some of it just kind of fades away back to um, you know sort of like in a sieve like way. Huh. That's interesting. I, I, you know, I think like looking at your work, I was sort of thinking like I couldn't quite place necessarily what the influences were until I got to the very, very end of your piece, which like seriously, everybody should go and, and read right now. Um, oh my God, Ali, it was open on my computer and now it's gone. It was, it was open on my computer and now it's it gone. Uh, no, that's a really good strip yeah. though. Uh, no, um, oh, gosh. Okay. It was about, it was about drawing blackness and you talked about Lance Tukes' work, um, with regards to your own in terms of, uh, like learning how like to like, actually draw black people in a black and white comic. And I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. Him. I remember his stuff. And I kind of see that connection. Um, but I, but it, but, but it's definitely like you have such a very, like unique and specific look, I could really identify your stuff anywhere. And it, it took you actually like pointing out a similarity to somebody else for me to even think about one, you know? Oh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, it's just that I've been all over the the world of comics. I've, I've been exploring it since for, I don't know, over 22 years now. So I... You know, I gain a lot of little bits, and I can, I could probably sit down with anybody and point out, oh, this this comes straight out of superhero comics. This comes out of Japanese comics, and you, it wouldn't be apparent until until pointing some of the stuff out. And some of the stuff is more apparent as well. So, but um, the the Lance Tukes thing, um, there was there, there was something that I was trying to explore um, in my own mind, and. I had sort of the idea to to explore some of this stuff in art, 
And when I saw, I just came across his work, and I was like, yes, exactly, somebody's done this. And that's uh, um, something that's that's pretty exciting to me just because, like, seeing a precedent, like, helps me. Um, I, I find that a lot of people, and in a lot of contexts, even myself, will shy away from things when they've seen them done before. Like, oh, I don't want to be accused of taking someone's idea, but instead, for me, it's sort of like somebody else has set the groundwork and started this conversation, and I want to, and I have thoughts on this, and I want to uh, put my own thoughts into this conversation as well. But it's only been uh, relatively recently that I've really invested in putting energy into that particular that particular aspect of my work, just like and things like navigating the idea of using straight up black ink to indicate black people and still not have to and still and, and have it in a different context because it's in our hands rather than in the hands of other people observing us and the difference is, is fairly in, in my opinion the difference is extremely um obvious when somebody mm-hmm. is using that same technique to talk about themselves rather than to describe other people who they don't really there's a clear distance, an emotional distance in in depicting people that way when you're not of that people. So when Lance does it and when I do it, I sense I get a sense of this is a way to describe ourselves. And I haven't actually spoken to him about it, but so I shouldn't. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it feels like a way to describe ourselves as opposed to when you see in some of the early 20th century strips, it's definitely more of a way to sort of point the finger and say, oh, those type of people over there, you know? So it, it, the, the per, there's just a certain way of when you do something and it's about you, it can't help but come across more human. Yes, totally. That's a great way to put it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, just for context. So the piece that I, I found it, it's, I'm actually going to tweet it right now for folks who are listening along. It's the uh, How to Be Black in Comics post that you did for the Nerds of Color um, All right. website. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed having the opportunity to, like, catch up on your work in, in general to prep for the show. But that piece was just this moment of, like, <gasps> so many interesting ideas in here. Um and and you know like with like Lance, I guess for folks who aren't familiar with Lance Took's work, he his the, the book of his that I'm familiar with was um or is uh, Narcissa, and um, the main character is an African American woman and she's like drawn in, in in black like that it's a black and white comic and like her skin is drawn as black in that comic so we're sort of talking about representation of African American skin and black skin like for more you know like in comics especially like when it's black and white comic, um such an interesting subject. Right. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I you you know you you've done comics that are about comics, and then you also have your comic series, which is like, I'm not really sure how to explain the Little Garden, um, but it's definitely not a comic series specifically to talking about comics. It's definitely like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it definitely feels like a sort of. Fantasy world isn't the right word to put either. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that series before I like completely do a point? Yeah, sure. So myself? it's a fantasy <laughs> world, right? And um, um, basically, it it came out of this point of I've always had this strong awareness when I was 
coming towards the end of my college career that it was that I've been in school since basically the beginning of my memory and I would need to make an extra effort to stay motivated outside of an academic setting because for the first time when you graduate from school, for the first time, if, you, if you're a traditional person who goes straight to school right after high school, you really have never experienced an unstructured world. And I needed to have some structure. I needed to retain that sense of assignment. So I gave myself an assignment. And I did something that most people seem to not like when I look at all the writer advice, artist advice. I decided not to challenge myself. The challenge would be endurance. And I decided to just make something that was purely just anything that I wanted to do and anything that came naturally. And so what ended up coming naturally was this sort of um, this sort of um, rule slash, like, I don't know, unspecified foresty, grassy world where um, anthropomorphic mythological beings sort of roamed around. And it was very low conflict because like the the real conflict was in real life. I mean, I was battling against uh, being a postgraduate and struggling to find a job. I just so I started off my day every day basically with uh, just in a peaceful world of uh, of zero conflict and uh, mm. and pretty low stakes. The deal was just to do it every day, and that turned out to be less challenging than I thought. It turned out to be more something that I came to rely on. And as I kept working in that world, it just became, I just made it more and more, uh, more and more uh, concrete by, by repetition, by returning to it constantly, uh, daily. And when I, when I slipped off of that, I realized that I wanted to return to it every now and then. So it became, from a series of illustrations to uh, several short stories throughout the years, and currently I'm doing a series of. Uh, just four panel comics that are not really meant to hit you with a joke, but just sort of, um, I don't know, hopefully curl you at the end of your mouth, you know. Eh, hmm. Just a little pleasant feeling. I, I you know, I, the way you talk about making these, it definitely sounds like co- making comics as a meditative practice is kind of what it sounds like to me. Meditative is the word I usually use when I'm thinking to myself about um, about what I'm doing. Um, it's uh, the regularity is what does it for me. Just uh, just a way to start my day and a way to to have something that anchors me every day. So I return to the same characters because at this point it's been 11 years and it's just uh, the the characters are not just familiar to me. They're just like old friends and. Um, and I just and the world is comfortable, so I just pretty much draw it as as readily as you know. Everybody's got something that sort of comes out of their pencil when they just start swiggling it around, and this has become mine. So it's sort of just uh, like an outpouring of myself, um, and and you know, it's not something that I would have initially before I started. I wouldn't have thought this is what my internal world is. But then again, having a sat down and gave myself an assignment to do basically the easiest thing possible indefinitely. That is what my internal world turns out to be. Hmm. It, I, it I sounds love it. to me, 
It sounds to me like a lot of you hear a lot of writers talk about that of of you know you just sit down and write and you got to you know make it a daily thing and kind of get in the groove and get going like is that kind of similar to you of, of how you're looking at it. Yeah, my mother accused me of being a creature of habit, and she's right. <laughs> um, I, I know a lot of people thrive on spontaneity and uh, and and sort of wildly divergent experiences. They do too much of the same thing. They get bored and can't and can't sustain it. I'm the opposite personality type, where where I need a strong anchor and a little and consistency and and reliability. And that allows me to slowly build something that, you know, without too much time passing, just becomes something that kind of impresses me. Like, oh, I've done all of this. Oh, interesting. Um, and the more, of course, the more that I do, the the firmer that 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 internal reality becomes external, and a thing that I can point to and say, you know, this is how I feel about everything in the world, you know. I really love the most recent post actually that you had up on Tumblr of um from that's the the the, the uh, series of you getting thrown off the rooftop, stomped by angels and bleeding for your art. Oh my god. I think that a lot of people I think will identify identify with that there. Oh, yeah. I actually scheduled that ahead of time, so I did, so I try to surprise myself by uh, scheduling Tumblr posts. So I'm like, oh, that went up. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> so yeah, those those are two of the characters, two of the principal characters from Little Garden. And at the time when I drew this, I hadn't done anything with Little Garden in a long time, and I was really just making fun of myself and beating myself up about it um and i sort of did one of those things that you see in the old cartoons where the cartoon characters are like actors and they're complaining about their roles and basically these two characters are harassing me because i haven't uh, been been working hard enough lately at that point so i'm here i am running away from them and they're chasing me down basically because you know they're like you know get back to work you lazy bum and you know that's basically uh what that's about um it's actually an unfinished comic and i just cropped into some of the more finished panels that also oh. kind of tell the story there's there's a lot more it's just not it's not cool it's kind of half baked so huh. but people seem to like it in this form so that's fine it totally hangs together for me and, and you know one of the things that i would say is that like Myself being someone who and this is sort of interesting i have a lot of background in like really avant-garde art but not really avant-garde comics. And I find a lot of the times when I go to things like Brooklyn Comic Arts Festival, which we'll be talking about in a little while, a lot of the work that I see on the table, uh, you know, it's obviously it's work that makes you work to understand it. Um, and it's work that isn't necessarily immediately penetrable or is deliberately impenetrable or, or understanding it is not the point and that's not what it's there to do. Because I've, you know, seen comics that were literally just modernist art um, and treated as a sequential story. Um, but this actually completely holds together even with the panels that are missing. Like I, I follow exactly, I mean, there probably are a lot of things I don't understand because they're not visually represented, but even with just the panels that you have here, like I, I follow it. It totally makes sense. I laughed. So the, the avant-garde version of it held together as well. <laughs> cool. Thanks. 
Um, but I guess it kind of get me thinking about like, you know, the, 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 the kind of comics that, that you make and that I see at places like Brooklyn Comic Arts Festival are very distinct from things that people are used to reading, not just from like the big two publishers, but like even like looking at publishers, you know, like Boom or, or, um, or like, well, I mean, yeah, Boom, who like is sort of a more diverse and catalog of kinds of comics that they're showing. This is all still very different and different from that. And it has different conventions in some ways. And I don't mean conventions like things that people go to. I mean conventions in terms of things that I see frequently. Um, you know, like the idea of making comics as a, in a miniature size, for example, as mini comics. Um, right. You know, like just at the scale question. And then I was looking at, looking at what, one of the things I really noticed looking at a lot of the colored comics at the con was how many comics were printed with the, like where the color scheme was magenta, yellow, cyan, like printers colors, but that, but they were specifically the colors used as the print itself. Um, and I was like, I wonder if that's because it's easier to print those if you're using a rayogram printer, or I wonder if everybody's actually doing this as a meditation around the nature of printed work. I'm not really sure, but it's like, there's a whole language out there that is, kind of it feels really separate and removed in a lot of ways from the mainstream comics world um i'm sorry i'm just babbling here but i i'm trying to think about like where where would you have people begin like where's a good place to begin if you're someone who's just trying to understand what 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 this is and what's available and what kind of work is out there for them to read well at my exact age of things when i was coming into um, this type of comics, it was right towards the end of everything being automatically in black and white. And when things started coming out in color, people were confused. And what ended up happening is people suddenly realized, oh, right, of course, we were doing things in black and white because that was the only option. And it, happened, it lasted for so long in that way that it became sort of a community aesthetic once the the internet became involved, people realized that they didn't have to be in black and white, that they that they had adopted an aesthetic that was largely based on technological limitations <laughs> of being a small publisher. Right. And as time goes on, uh, the, the type of colors that you're referring to are, I, I think, another technological thing where a lot of people get either are professionally involved in printing or just have access to the, these types of printers and are just sort of, you know, finding out cool effects and things like that. I don't know necessarily how – I'm not one of them, so I don't know how how much, how many of them or what percentage or the general tone of whether people are doing things because it's cool or because there's enough of it going around that it seems like the community vibe or or whatever – but I, I definitely enjoy looking at them for sure. Hmm. Um, oh, there was another part to that question. What was that again? I was just really observing at how much was, you were sort of talking about the CMYK piece, but then also sort of where would somebody begin if they just, if they had no idea about like real underground comics, real indie comics, like where, where should they begin? What are things that are, might be more accessible for them or where should they look to buy things? All right. So, this is something that I thought about for 
a while is one of the first things that I thought about because this is something that that uh, scratches the surface of things that really bother me. Um, mm-hmm. I would say the the best way for a person who's not at all involved in this but may, may be interested is to check out whatever anthologies are going on at that point in time. When I started out in like 2000, 2001, there were a lot of anthologies around. Today, it's the same way. There's the, I don't actually know how it's pronounced, but um, it's the letter S with a with a strange um, V-shaped accent on top from Kush. Um, there's uh, the Frontier uh, show, Spotlight Showcase magazine. There's the No Brow anthology that's half illustration and half short story comics. And there's other anthologies that come up uh, here and there, and those are just the ones that I thought of off the top of my head. Uh, and also, I, I want to point out that there's a lot of the small publishers have have decided to do subscription models to where you just buy their whole catalog for a season, and then that will that 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 takes away from the uh, the access problems of not being around. Uh, the cities that are the focal points of these festivals. Mm. So that would be like Retrofit, Oily Comics, Koosh again, 2D Cloud. They they um, sell subscriptions, and you can just say, give me all of this for you know a few bucks, and then uh, you'll just get a regular you know supply of just of just a, a shot of this, a shot of that, and maybe you won't like it all, but you kind of get a sense of what's going on, or at least in the past few years with these particular publishers. And to me, I think that's like just a good i a good way to um spend a little bit of money like an anthology is gonna cost you twelve to twenty five bucks you know depending on which one it is the subscription's probably gonna cost about the same depending on which one it is and you know you'll you'll kinda get a bunch of stuff and things that you may not be interested in or may not understand and some things that you may be you know find that you really like and I think that's like the fastest way for anybody to just get into it, uh, just just for their own um, knowledge of what it what what the scene is like. And it really seems like, you know, the, the I sort of had this idea for a while that a lot of contemporary self-published indie comics were like autobiographical comics, which is something that I have next to no interest in the most majority of the time. But when I started going to Brooklyn Comic Arts Expo, it actually seemed to me like the vast majority of them were just really fucking trippy. And that was the uniting factor between a lot of the comics art. And I was like, oh, things that are really fucking trippy, that's something I can get behind. Um, less so about, you know, people's man angst, but more so about things that are just psychedelic and, and, and fantastic to look at. Um, I, I'd almost feel like that's the dominant genre in some ways of what I was looking at when I was at uh, – at the at the comic at the comics convention over there. I don't know if you think there's any other like genres within like other genres that maybe you could tease out to our listeners. Well, yeah, I think that that's that's a big thing for that, especially for CAB and um, it's the the show that it replaced, which was BCGF. Um, I, I would say that that's probably a pretty good read on it. There's always autobiographical comics, and I think that. Just like anything else, they succeed or fail in the same sort of percentages that any other genre or mode of expression succeeds or fails. Uh, I personally get a lot out of them just because it's 
I don't know, I've always been curious about other just plain regular people doing their plain regular things, but that's just me. Um, as far as, like, the more, of the other types of genres of uh, this stuff, I would always say, like, definitely the psychedelic stuff is a huge thing. And also just, uh, there was a there was a while a few years ago where there was a lot of, um, like, traditional... D&D Tolkien-style fantasy going around. I'm not sure if that's still going or if it's fading out. I cannot... I can't really get a clear read on it. But oh, right now, I don't know that there's a dominant um, a dominant genre or anything like that. Maybe I'm just that, too close yeah. to it to see. I don't know. I feel but, like I saw a good amount of comics that were, like, sort of, like, looking at pro wrestling, like... Like, wrestling seems like, to have gotten big. Yeah, wrestling is like huge right now. I, um, Re- it seems wrestling and MMA seem to be big. Well, what about the genre? So this is a, a genre that I've noticed is that there's a lot of folks with indie comics that um, seem to challenge the idea of a comic itself, either mm. in size, like literally the size of it, or how the, the comic is told. I, I noticed on SPX there was a few infinite comics where you – you kind of like read around the the piece of paper over and over and over again, um, and the way it's put like together. Like a Mobius strip. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a Mobius. And I'm trying to think. I think Retrofit had one. Um, and oh, I think maybe I did it was not retrofit. see that one. Yeah, there's a, there's been a couple, and they're beautiful to look at. Like just the the, um, you know how it's put together. I mean, it's just gorgeous unto that unto itself. Um, but I've noticed that indie comics are much more into challenging like how the story is told from, like, an actual visual perspective. Um, like, forget the art and forget the story, but, like, you know, is it really small? Is it a matchbook size? Is it really large? Um, you know, is it plates? Like, there was one guy that did it with individual plates for his comics uh, last year or two years ago. Um, you know, I, I would almost call that a genre to itself. Yeah, that's the more formalist thing. Um, I find it very interesting because when... Um, you see a lot of the mainstream superhero comics, such as the famous Hawkeye with the dog. I think that was Hawkeye 11. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the Young Avengers stuff, the, um, the Gil and McKelvey Young Avengers, you, you'll see a lot of really cool magic tricks, I like to call them. And a lot of that stuff has been um, sort of like like laid out in experiment form that wasn't meant to be anything but the experiment itself. Just sort of like, hey, look, look, I figured out a trick. You want to see it? And um, then later somebody else um, and other various other people will find a way to incorporate that trick into their, like, traditional narratives to make uh, a more, like, an emotional resonant point or even just an action point or, or a way of telling, like, conveying physical information or emotional information um, I think that you saw a lot of that with uh, when Chris Ware broke through in 2000 with Jimmy Corrigan, where like sort of like the 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 intersection of um, really experimental ideas and traditional traditional literary type of narrative, um, and I don't know. I, I I find the experiments not necessarily... Uh, I try to take them in the spirit in which experiments are, which is just sort of like, hey, cool, nice. Um, but I don't know that that 
I don't know that 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 too many people look at them besides sort of like like the way you would look at like a special effects house and just say, oh, good, they make interesting special effects. I don't think that that's also too many people's main desire. I'm sure there's there's I'm sure there's a lot of people who it is their main desire, but um, I think that you know if you think of something cool and it doesn't have anything to do, you just sort of like do the thing just to just to prove that it can be done and uh, and put it out there to show people. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I. You know, I I just try to think about like I feel in some ways for folks who are like listening to this podcast, I think in some ways like the people who I think might be most interested in checking out art comics, I think are people who've been away from comics for so long and just haven't really considered what's possible with the medium itself in and of itself. You know? Yeah, I was thinking of that. Um, I was specifically thinking like I I went around for a while just sort of like pounding my head against the wall trying to figure out who are who are the people who are supposed to read these things besides other cartoonists and it was pointed out to me other artists in general and then initially I was dissatisfied with that answer but also it's a great it's a great reality that like you know other people in the arts who are already inclined towards thinking about aesthetics and tricky ideas may not be in this field particularly, but they'll still be close enough to um, to appreciate it for what it is in the same way that, you know, a person, like I'm not a film person, but I can still look at a film and not and see it beyond just the story and look at like kind of like the trickery and, and craft that goes into making that. So, you know, I, I totally, I do understand that. So, it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Um, you know, I noticed actually in reading your own your own analysis of uh other people's comics, you definitely apply a lot of I guess narrative conventions that you learn from studying cinema to your interpretation of, you know, other people's art, which makes a ton of sense because that's what a lot of us are doing since it's more uh, learning about film theory is a bit more accessible in school usually than learning about comics. Um, but I was sort of wondering about like if you had much of a background in 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 talking about film when you're when you're talking about comics art, or if you think it's particularly relevant. No, I have no background in film, except that I, I sort of associate watching a lot of movies with the college experience. And when I was in college, I watched as many movies as I could possibly bear to. Um, sometimes we were watching like two and three movies a day and it wasn't even like a special event that we were inviting people over for. Um, just sounds like my college. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just felt like we were, we were supposed to be doing it. So we did. And, um, there wasn't much else to do anyway. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I never studied film theory. I've read like an article about films, you know, like, it's it's not something that I've ever studied. It's just sort of like it, it, the thing about film that I like is that it's it's visual culture, it's visual storytelling, and but it's more known to it's known to more people rather. So 
even when I'm talking with comics people, we're more likely to have a, a common ground of conversation about a film because more people in general, even comics people, more people will watch the same movie and have that shared experience that we could talk about than mm-hmm. the same comic. So that's just sort of the way uh, the the way the the cultures in general have uh, evolved. So. So I don't know. I'm, I mean, I may have a, a little bit of language for talking about film and uh, visual media in that way, but I try to keep it very comic-y when I'm talking about comics. Um, I try to. There's a lot of things about film that I kind of try to leave in film and not bring to the way I think about comics. Mm-hmm. Especially with indie comics. I'm sorry, art comics, which are really very much about the medium itself. I think a lot. Um, well, yeah, I think that what happens with mediums is there's a context for how they, there's a context for their existence. Um, my, um, a big, a big deal for me would be a recent film in the Tarantino and Glorious Bastards where you've got, um, you've got this miraculous shot. If you've seen it in the theater, it doesn't, I doubt it means anything if you've seen it anywhere else, but you see it in the theater, there's a shot that is inside a theater and it feels like the theater you're in. Like you, you never see yeah. the movie theater you're in when you're watching a movie theater, but all of a sudden the movie theater that you're in appears in your peripheral vision again, where you normally ignore it. And oh. the screen theater seems to extend into the real world. It's very amazing. It's better than any 3d movie. Um, so, I mean, formalism is always there in, in every field, but like, there's a lot of things about about um, comics that uh, that are that are specific to comics. I think that I really um, that I, I see people beating up comics sometimes for not doing things that television or films do, and I think that one of the things I want that I always want to try to remember is what are comics for and why? How do people? How do people consume them? How do they read them? How, what is and then because like that how and the way that it interacts with people's lives means a lot to how um, how I want to approach them. So when I look at a comic that is meant to be read in a single strip on in a newspaper, then I see that as being different than something that's a graphic novel where you're supposed to read all the pages at once. The a comic that comes out serialized is meant to be the small part of a person's day that doesn't also consume a lot of the person's extra the time outside of reading that versus a book which kind of wants to be sat down with and wants to absorb you in itself. And I think that it's very important to not um, to not look at something that is not trying to be something. And, it, and then be angry at it for not being what it's not trying to be, which I think kind of happens a lot, with, hmm. especially with a small field like this type of comics that doesn't have a lot of cultural training in how to interact with it. That's true. That's totally true. I, I, I really actually like what I've read from you talking about the questions about how people actually read and consume comics. You know, two things that really stuck out to me, actually, as a consumer when I was at uh, Brooklyn Comic Arts Festival, which, oh, my gosh, I forgot to define it to people. Um, it's a independent um, small comic arts festival that's in the basement of a church in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, and 
this year there were both panel sessions for the first time as well as just being like a an area where creators had books set up and people could go and meet and buy things um and there's more to say about that but just putting a pin in that for a second um well, while i was there for the first time there were a couple of things in terms of how i consumed comics that became limitations for me in terms of trying to buy things which is that i didn't want to buy many comics because they're just going to get mushed and like lost somewhere um and I understand why from a creator's perspective to make a mini comic is because like you're doing something with that limited space and it's making you get that work done and get that work out. But to me trying to buy it, I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to destroy this fragile thing. And then similarly looking at all the newsprint based pieces of art, like there would be, there's like newsprint like that are printed and folded like newsprint, you know, comics. And there are a couple of things that I really liked from that. And I just looked at them and thought again, I am going to mangle this thing. You know, I have a hard time keeping my own press clippings from the past in some sort of usable order. I don't know if it's the issue is that because I'm someone who bags and boards their floppies and, like, puts them in boxes. I mean, right now my husband's laughing because there also is a pile of them on the table. But generally speaking, puts them into bags and boxes um, that maybe I'm looking at it wrong and that these mini comics and these newsprint comics, it's, like, okay that these are things that are, that are going to get mushed and dissolve into the ether. Or maybe I'm just really well, clumsy. Well, here's the thing. I'm definitely clumsier no matter what you say. Because I <laughs> might just cover the entire room. Like, I'm ankle deep in this stuff everywhere. It's surrounding me. Um, I try to I'm trying to promote this thing I call the shoebox rule, which is to say that people don't discard their shoeboxes on the chance that they may not fit their shoes. And then eventually the shoeboxes just stay in their house. Take the shoeboxes, put your mini-comics in the shoeboxes, and that's a filing system. You stick them out of the way, and then when you want to read some mini-comics, pull them out, pull the box out of the closet, pull the mini-comic out of the box, keep it neat. That's my aspiration. Nowhere near it, but that's my aspiration. Now, as a New Yorker, I can definitely find a place for mini-comics, and that's to say we're always commuting. And anybody else who has a, a good public transport system, I would say, um, just to be able to um, take this small, it's not going to last your whole commute, but just it's something that you stick in your bag, you pull it out while you're on the train or on the bus, you, you read it for a few minutes, you think about it, you stick it away. Um, or if you are to, like me, go to a coffee shop, you might go there, and while you're drinking your coffee, just sort of like read it at your leisure and... That sort of thing is, is kind of the culture I imagine for mini comics. But I'm constantly asking people, "What do you do? What do you read? How do you read your mini comics? What is the way in which that you interact with it?" I remember in 2002 when the first Mocha show—that's a Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art show—the first one was um, in June of 2002—and I remember this really odd moment in the middle of the afternoon. It was a one-day show back then, and I. I just saw like a large group of people sitting in a corner in a big circle and they didn't all appear to be friends. They were just all sitting cross-legged on the floor just pouring over their comics and I was like, oh, I've never seen that before because I've never seen anybody actually interact with this stuff. Uh, I was pretty new to it uh, as well. So I was like, oh, it, just, it, it struck me as this very, um, like that is how you interact with them. You you have a bag full of it and then you just plop down and you just start just 
pumping them into your brain. So, uh, but but honestly, I don't know how other people interact with them. Like, it's it's very odd in that way. Like, we all know how people interact with music, you know? We know how people interact with film, but mm-hmm. we're still trying to figure, or at least I don't know who else is, but I know that a lot of people are probably trying to figure out, like, wh- who is the person on the other end of this communication? Is it not normal to bag and board your mini comics, or is that just me? I have no idea. Because <laughs> hearing you talk now, I feel like I'm totally abnormal. <laughs> No, but Brett, we bag and board things because we're the kinds of people who bag, who bag and board comics because we yeah. have oh, yeah. mountains of DC and Marvel lying around in our homes. I I don't think there's anything wrong with our system, but it's interesting, though, because I had wondered if maybe these things were intended to be more disposable, but actually, in reality, you just have a better filing system than we do. I I, I just tweeted about your, your case for the shoebox of mini comics, and I, I think that that's a good rule to put out there. Yeah, and also I think it, the part of the rule is to limit the amount of mini comics you have, because I don't <laughs> actually think they're disposable. They're actually quite expensive most of the time, and 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 many of them are quite like like lavishly put together with oh, a lot yeah. of care, so they don't feel disposable. But they also are not forever things. Um, I I I lost like. 50 pounds of mini comics, just a giant container vanished off the face of the planet. And I don't miss it at all, you know, because I just keep going to shows every year and I keep acquiring more stuff. It's just, uh, but, but, but the question for me remains just what, what is the culture of, of this type of work? What is the culture that we are that we are engaged in and how, and, and, and that what are, how did to, to get back to an earlier question about how to get people involved in it. People, there's another problem where people don't necessarily know what to expect of it as a culture. Like after they have this thing handed to them or after they have purchased this thing, like, like you say, what do you do with it physically? Like, where do you put it? Um, do you, do you read it and throw it away or, are you supposed to just hand it off to people or are you supposed to come up with a filing system? Um, there's a culture that we don't really get. The biggest thing that I try to advocate for though is rereading because they are very quick to read. And I think that that quickness lends them towards more revisiting in the same way that music is quick and popular music, not necessarily some like, like operas and stuff, but like music, popular music is very quick to consume and so you just listen to it more. You listen to the same song over and over and I don't see as much of a discussion of the re- of a culture of rereading and that's something that I'm really interested in because I mm. think that there's more to be gained that way and also maybe that's part of what what a lot of us myself included miss out on um when we're just in a hurry to get the next new thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You wrote a really good piece about that, actually. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to, like, think about, you know, it's rereading stuff that I've recently bought. It's, like, one thing to think about, like, rereading older stuff, which I think people kind of do, but looking and rereading things that I've recently bought as a, you know, making sure that I'm really absorbing everything the way I think I am when I'm processing it. 
Yeah. It's a, there's kind of a tiered thing because I think that there's some things that, just like music, there's some songs that you'll listen to and you'll be like, well, I know what that is and I'm done with it. And same thing with movies, whereas we all had that movie that we keep watching uh, over and over again and the same song that we listen to over and over again. And, you know, I found that when I allowed it to happen, it's the same thing with uh, these comics. There's some that I will just read over and over again. Like when I'm strolling out of the house, I'll just grab, uh, I'll just grab that familiar one that I like so much. And not everything has the same type of immediate reread value. Sometimes it's, some things need to be read once a year or some, or even less frequently, but some things when you read them, it grabs your brain and you just, you like it so much. I'm like, well, we don't. We've kind of taught, taught ourselves not to reread things, but instead to buy in more things. But when you really got that thrill from something, you probably just need to reread it again and again and again until until you either absorbed enough of it for the time being, or have just worn it out for yourself, one or the other. Hmm. I just got tweeted at from um I, I tweeted something about my my belief in the various potential subgenres of art comics listed, you know, autobio being trippy, wrestling, breaking the boundaries of the medium and cackling. And I've been received a, an avid, avid uh, denial of my thesis from Bill Cartaopoulos, uh, who is a series editor at Best American Comics. Um, and um and from um, M. Kupperman as well. So uh, I'm going to have to check out these guys' recommendation. Um, yeah. I still think say? my observation is pretty accurate. <laughs> They're like, the only genres are art and not art. I'm like, no! <laughs> the only genres are adequately trippy and inadequately trippy. Those are the only <laughs> genres. Actually, I didn't I don't, know that. I don't know, what not art, I don't know what not art means, so... <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh... Sorry, Bill. I don't know what not art means. <laughs> it's all art. It's just uh, some stuff is more resonant to what what you're looking for at a given time, and and some stuff is less. And some stuff will never appeal to a person. And some stuff, you know, it comes and it goes, or you're not you didn't experience it at a time that's good for you, or maybe it's just never for you, or what have you. There's good art. There's bad art. But it's all some kind of art. I, I haven't been to, you know, speaking of, of genres and stuff like that, I haven't been to Comics Art Brooklyn yet, but I, I go to SPX every year because I'm in D.C. Uh, is it, you know, very different comics that you see at each? I mean, there's got to be like a little bit of crossover with, with creators, but, you know, is it really kind of different styles at each show? No, I don't think so. I think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a crossover so much as it's, um, I think that Small Press Expo is a much physically larger show, and I think that it, it completely envelops and encompasses the entirety of what you see at Comic Art Brooklyn. I mean, I was phys- I mean, I'm like like the SPX seems different because there's many other types of okay. indie comics there, versus Comic Art Brooklyn has a very um, not a singular, that's not the right word, 
but it does have a more specific set of aesthetics that you'll see there. Mm-hmm. But all of those aesthetics will be present within the realm of Small Press Expo and also uh, Mocha and some of the other larger indie shows. But they'll be they they won't be the dominant force because there's other there's other types of indie stuff there as well at those at those larger shows. And so um and you know, we all know each other, so <laughs> even things that don't link up aesthetically for from the perspective of a person who is viewing stuff, you know, we you know, it's like, you know, we're all colleagues if not friends, so we we you know you know we all hang out after the show and uh, and and share ideas and even if we don't want to absorb the aesthetics of our neighbors in the field and colleagues in the, in the field, you know, it's it's not really like a separate thing. Like we're not aliens to one another. Gotcha. But, yeah, I really did feel like there was a certain amount of, like, shared language and visual language when I was at Brooklyn Comic Arts Festival. But maybe that's just because looking at risograms for the first time, you know, or I guess second time because I was there before. But, I, I, I golly, how to explain this? It's like a, a silkscreen machine, kind of. Um, it uses stencils, and you load it up with ink, and it just sort of does, like, a mass silkscreen. But it has, like, a silkscreen effect. It's still very laborious, you know. Um, a process compared to just Xeroxing something or inkjet printing something. But um, that's like a really popular tool that I've seen at Brooklyn well, Comic Arts. I heard that even though they're very, like they look very beautiful. And so you think that I've been told, and I don't know firsthand, but I've been told that they're fairly inexpensive. And that's what led to the rise mm. of these machines. And I also heard that they're kind of technologically obsolete, so maybe people were getting, maybe they're not truly inexpensive so much as people were getting them as other companies or larger companies were were trying to get rid of them as discount. I'm not sure. This is all hearsay from my part, but um, it seems as though what was what is being done with it is definitely more more. I don't want to like it kind of experimental, but but sort of people just trying out this machine and seeing what it can do, but at the same time, not not purely only to do that. Sometimes, but you know, you you still have like like the strong the strong idea of making this really really conspicuously narrative art that's about being a narrative and not about being purely an experiment, but also doing the experiment on that or throughout that. And so it's, it, there, there's a lot of, it, it definitely does have an aesthetic. If you were to narrow it down to just the risograph stuff, um, you'll definitely see like, that's a pretty good um, visual snapshot of what, what's going on a lot in, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of our field. Cool. Are there specific creators? Well, I guess we sort of talked about where you recommended for new people, but like, who are who are specific creators? Just generally speaking, like working in the art comics world, that you think people should get introduced to. Hmm. Well, uh, I don't know. When I start naming names, it'll start being everybody. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, like I, I like I mentioned, I 
I've explored a, a huge, huge, like, overall world-spanning view of comics. So it, it's hard for me to, to just narrow things down. But I'm very, I was always very interested in uh, Nikki Zakali, her stuff, and um, just like like one of the earlier, one of my earlier uh, exposures to the Risograph comics, and she's still excellent at it. Um, let me see. There's also, uh, I'm, I'm always very impressed with. Uh, I'm always very impressed with um, Sophia Foster Domino stuff, um, and oh, now I'm just looking, throwing my eyes around the room and just sort of seeing what a, <laughs> what is. Uh, th- th- there's there there's there's too many people to start uh, start picking them out individually. Okay, okay. Um, I'm a huge I'm a huge supporter of uh Katie Skelly's stuff. I just yeah, I totally. just find it a lot mm-hmm. of a lot a lot to just like really focused on on her aesthetics and they and the and her aesthetics grow at this very at this very like focused pace that that's really really fun to see every show or every every different show that she does and she comes out with a new comic. So there's that as well. Um, and you know, there's so many, there's so many, so many other people in the, in the field that like, you know, I'm going to hang up this phone and think of like 50 people. So. <laughs> okay. I gotcha. Well, it's interesting in terms of how things connect. Cause I discovered Kate Skelly because she did the back cover for the humans the Humans being a comic that some people would consider an indie comic because it's on image. I would consider it as a creator-owned comic um, uh, that I really, really like. And, um, you know, I found her, like, through that. And I know that the guys who are on that book, you know, have a lot of a back history doing more small press stuff. So it's sort of like one thing leads to discovering another. Yeah, it's very interesting because um, – um, I, I know I know Tom Neely's stuff, and I'm less familiar with um, I believe it's Keenan. Yeah, Keenan. Less familiar Martin with Keller. his work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm less familiar with. I don't know. I don't know that I know his stuff before the humans, but but it's very interesting because that's an interesting exercise in contextualizing because those those comics would very easily be right there at Comics Art Brooklyn last weekend, but just by putting an image logo on it mm-hmm. and using um, the type of coloring schemes that are being used in mainstream comics, all of a sudden it doesn't belong in the comics art Brooklyn world and it belongs in not quite the mainstream of image world, but on that spectrum. And it's very interesting how how just a simple, a simple addition of the branding um, umbrella and a change in in a coloring scheme of like using that type of uh like USA mainstream comics coloring will suddenly contextualize something as being far flung different when these are the same people who I mean I met Tom or I'm not sure if I met Tom actually but I mean I've seen Tom at Mocha for years and years before all this so you know it's it, it's just like this it's the same people doing the same work, but just by 
putting it in a different way, a different audience will see it than the audience that, and they would not have ever seen it if they had put it out as uh, as a risograph comic in um, Comics Art Brooklyn, no matter if it was the otherwise the exact same book. Which is interesting because yeah. the first time I saw The Humans was actually at, at SPX. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, like it was a couple months. It was the year that the first issue came out. Like whatever SPX that was, was the first time I saw their stuff. So it's it's kind of fascinating, and I totally agree with you that, you know, just a small, just like a small uh, logo or something on that does that because there's issues all the time with uh, first second, which I would consider to be more indie small press. It's definitely not Marvel or DC. Whether or not they belong at a show like. Uh, uh, you know, SPX or probably Comics Art Brooklyn or something like that, where you know, maybe not Comics Art Brooklyn, but definitely fits SPX. Uh, well, but because the thing about, well, the thing about for a second is that um, uh, Kathy G. Johnson um is like you know, you know, like one of these people who's got like uh, a mainstream appeal and also like uh how you say, um, I mean, she's right there in the comics art Brooklyn. And then you've got like, uh, like this other, like just by context, just by somebody saying this belongs here as well. Then suddenly there's a big change in what, and how it, uh, and how it's meant to come out. So it's the same thing. I think that sometimes just having the company say, we believe in this and stand behind it will expose it to different people without actually changing the artist's intent. Mm. Hmm. I, I actually want to make sure before, uh, I wanted to know sort of like, what is your current engagement or disengagement with like, I, big publishers made comics like, you know, the big two and things like that these days as a reader? Um, let's see. I'm not currently engaged with them um, on a personal level. I still kind of, I, I still know a fair deal about them because of social media and the the sort of the networks and people who I've who I picked up when I was further into it, I didn't like disown them or anything. So it's not as though it's not like uh, in a pre-internet world where if you sort of like fall out of something, you can, you just sort of, it just sort of shuts off out of your life. Mm -hmm. I still see a lot of that stuff and um, I'm not, I'm not down on it. I just had my fill for a while and it's been a pattern that, Every few like I every every several years or every few years I pick up superhero comics, get slowly deeper into them, get expert level deep into them, and then have my fill and move on out of them. And that cycle is sort of repeated just now, and I'm just sort of uh, and I'm sort of uh, you know I I found that myself out really far from home basically where I wanted to get back to what it is that I do. And I had to, and and it wasn't even a matter of making any hard decisions. It was just like I not really wanting to. I really want to get more into this type of work that I make, and so I have to. And I'm not really that engaged with the stuff that I'm looking at currently. I don't actually I'm not forced to read it, so I'm just going to not 
not do that for a while. And and it's always another situation where, like, just having a library card and living in a big city, you know, I can always uh, just uh, use my library card just to figure out, just to find out if there's anything I'm missing. But most of the time, I'm just, personally, I'm focusing more on on this art comics world and what I'm in just sort of focus more on what I've been doing and, and not what I've been doing, but what I've been doing and things like what I've been doing and people who work in the same register and uh, mode that I've been working in. Do, do you have any <clears throat> thoughts? Um, a pattern that I've kind of noticed over the last few years is a lot of the more interesting stuff, like diversity or just ideas, or you know, a lot of the real creative stuffs coming out of, you know, self-published indie, really indie comics, and then those people kind of get snatched up by small publishers, and then eventually they get start to get snatched up by the big two. Is that kind of an observation you're having too? That you know, a lot of that, not a lot of it, some of that talent's kind of being sucked up to kind of almost get like indie cred by larger publishers. I, I don't think so. Okay. I feel that I've seen... Well, okay, no, I take it back. I feel that when... I haven't talked at all about what um, traditional web comics, and there's a lot of comics on the internet, but I don't <laughs> think of them as being web comics, but there's something that I do think of as being web comics. I find that a lot of the web comics appeal much more directly to what the uh, mainstream of USA Comics do and so when they want to branch out, they end up hiring a lot of those types of people. Um, you saw them on some of the licensed stuff and some of the boom type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are certain kind of Marvel comics that have been looking for that aesthetic as well. But it's, it's a very specific subset. And also, you know, you see Box Brown doing books with First Second. Um, that's a different type of mainstream but generally speaking, I don't see like a trend so much as just the natural um, sort of, uh, I guess, promotion, I suppose, of people just moving upwards in the field where there is um, where there is some kind of uh, hook that that can grab more and more people. And there's some people whose stuff will always be obscure, not because it's bad or not because it's even unmarketable, but just because of what those markets are built to promote and what those markets are built to expect. So sometimes you see people who will who will just naturally, just because of the way they do things, you know, have different, um, I guess, clients, different clients who will want to absorb their or, or use or hire them for for their work and uh, other people who will always be putting their own work out just because they're the people, even though the pe- even though other people like that work, they are the only people who are going to be willing to put that investment into that particular work. And I don't think there's anything, from an artistic stance, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Clearly, obviously, there's a problem where people would, many people, not everybody, but many people would prefer to, be paid than to create their own job, which is uh-huh. yeah. a lot of labor. So, so that's a different issue, I think. But I don't know that there's necessarily a trend. But I also don't know that there's not. 
fair enough. All right. And but I yeah, um, we'll say, uh, you know, I I know Alano uh, kind of going into this that you you uh, you know um, you Daryl kind of seen the the growth of Brooklyn Comics and uh, Graphics Art Festival to the Comics Art Brooklyn today. Like, what what have mm-hmm. you noticed over the years of that? You know, kind of the shows morphing from what was to what is. Um, well, for me, I noticed the big change has been, well, it's very, very, very popular. Like, I've always noted that there's this mid-afternoon burnout where if you were to approach the the church where the event is held, that there's just people milling around on the steps or on the street or whatever, and it's because it's there's even more people inside and it's super hot. And so what ends up happening is uh, it's popular. People don't want to leave because it's their one time to be there. They want to see everything. So it's kind of packed. What ended up happening is the programming got squeezed out as they wanted to make more space in the venue for more exhibitors. And that's created this really special, uh, this really special feeling. And it's not the only show I don't think. I think there's other shows that do this. I'm not entirely sure. But they have their their um, traditional comics convention, the selling part where you meet the artist, buy the art on one day, and they have the program and all the panels on another day. And I really like that because hmm. I'm a huge fan of comics panels. Um, um, obviously, a person who likes to talk about comics, and I like the idea that it doesn't detract from from the time spent, especially when they moved the panels off-site because they were using the entire site for the sales floor, you know, you would have people going several blocks away. It's kind of odd. So they say, well, they eventually decided, well, why don't we just do it on a completely different day? And it seems to work. Um, I I attended the panels at the uh, Weiss Hotel last year, and... um, I also did so, uh, um, well, yesterday, um, Sunday of this year, and I and and I think that that was a, I think that's a really good um, solution to the sort of different motivations that people have for these festivals. Uh, some people just want to get a bunch of cool stuff and go home, and some people want to hear a bunch of um, interesting conversations. And some people want to do both, and you can do both if you separate them and let people do all their selling on one day and do all their chattering on the other. And, you know, I think that that's that's probably the biggest change and maybe the most significant one as far as this particular show goes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I kind of wanted there to be a mix, but that's just because that's how I'm used to to it. I'm, you know, from Comic-Con, I'm used to having panels and a showroom and just making time to do both and kind of go through both. But there's always, you know, with any kind of convention, you always have that standard fear of missing out, which is, you know, or FOMO, as it were. Um, And that's, I guess, (laughs) going to happen no matter what. Um, I I didn't get to go to the the panels this year, but they sounded really good. I'm really sad I couldn't do it. I went to one of the panels this year. not not due to lack of interest, just uh, due to very busy uh, busy personal personal schedule. 
but um, you know, I just I wanted to get to I wanted to get to two. I made it to one, and I I personally think that the system that they have here is um, for for this purposes for a show this size is better than when they had the mix because I remember going down to Knitting Factory in the middle of the show and you know. I, I also remember not having any fear of missing out um, when I was at this festival last year when they split them into two different days and this, the fest, like there, you weren't going to miss anything because all of the chat, all the talks would be on um, Sunday and you were just, and you could, it was, it was this really odd system where you walk in on the ground floor and then you walk down to the basement auditorium where the panels are thing they file you out of the panel room to give everyone a fair chance to go there. So you go up to the hotel again, back to the sidewalk, and then go back down again. And it's kind of like this really funny, um, if they sped it up in fast motion, it'd be like one of those old movies. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, 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 I think I would stand with it by saying it's a really good system for people who want to experience it all and don't want to miss any part of it for any other part. And there's no overlapping panels, which is good. Because mm-hmm. from my perspective, the person who goes to panels, they always put the panels that I want to go to at the same time as one another. So there's that. I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, and certainly they're curated really well, which helps as well. Yeah. I'm making that decision. The, all comics conventions are just this huge exercise in FOMO for me. Like no matter where I am, no matter what I do, it's hard. Yeah. That's sort of it. Like I didn't see, I didn't see a lot of stuff at, um, at the sales, uh, at the sales aspect of this show. Cause I was behind a table. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I missed a lot of the, a lot of the debuts or, or the people who I would have liked to run into, uh, chat with, get stuff from, didn't didn't really catch a lot of them, which is unfortunate. But you know, I was there to do a job, and so were they, and so that's that's the way that is. But but I mean, all in all, I think that I think it worked pretty well, especially given that it's a show that's very conscious of its own size and is using its size to its advantage. Hmm. It's also using the fact that literally it's a church, so they can't do anything on Sundays because Sundays are, are when churches do their regular thing. So yeah. there's also that. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, of course, and you know, but also like it was just interesting being in a church space with so much non-kid appropriate art. I, I saw some kids. I saw I saw some moms with their kids on the subway on my way out there, and I was wondering if they were with comics stuff on their clothes, and I was wondering if they were going to the comic arts fest because. It's free, which is awesome. And I was when I got there, I was like, I didn't see them, so I suppose they weren't. But I was thinking, ooh, they're really, really. There are definitely things there that like are good for kids, but just not. But so much of it is not appropriate that it would kind of be a complicated space to take a kid to, you know? Yeah, I, I'm sort of used to it because uh, I'm used to the old style of comic shows where it's like a bunch of dealers in the in a church basement on a Saturday afternoon and uh, and. Um, also, I've never been a part of this scene, but the whole like renting out a church basement or church rec room for a punk show or something <laughs> I, mean, it's, I think it follows the same um idea that um I guess churches rent out their spaces for pretty cheap and they have 
large spaces. So it's pretty yeah. good for both ends. And the churches are willing to look the other way and, and or not even look the other way, just, you know, they know that they're just renting out their space and, you know, they need money because they need to do their thing as an institution and uh, and people need their space to, to play, play music or run around and do art stuff. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't find anything... I personally don't think it's very um, conflicting, but I did find myself looking at a crucifix when I was at the uh, <laughs> I was at the show, just sort of staring at it, like, "Oh yeah, that's what this place normally is." Yeah, yeah, it's a real it's a real lot of fun, and I we should we should probably get the, one of the festival um, organizers on the show sometime in the future. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, I think it's really interesting to. Um, I'm not sure I, I, you'd have to ask him, but I think that Gabe, who runs Desert Island and his show, mm-hmm. I think he has a background in music. So I think that you'll see a, that a lot of the music parallels come from from that. But I'm oh. not entirely sure. I may be remembering this wrong. That makes a lot of. So, I mean, and I've been to Desert Comic, Desert Island Comics Store, which, like, in Williamsburg, which is something folks visiting the desktop check out. Um, this one of those places where I go in, and I'm like, the only book I recognize here is Kim Deitch. I don't know anything else happening here at all because I'm way too mainstream. Um, but, yeah, like, it definitely has that feeling, and, you know, being in Williamsburg has that sort of cultural connection to or at least it did one could argue yeah, that there's, still gone some now. Rev- <laughs> there's still some remnants of this sort of um of like this sort of like wave of grungy street art and um and mixed with the kind of i don't know what you want to call it juxtapose style fine art slash illustration world and also a cotton candy machine um tara mcpherson's venue was involved as well. I did not get a chance to get down there because that's too far away when you have a table or when you're behind a table in any way. It's like a too, it's not far in real life, but it's not, it's too far to abandon your table that long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think that that's a good mix for the show. And it's also a good, like aesthetic uh, kindred for uh, the type of comics that are being done. It, um, at um at this festival and uh even the larger festivals like SPX and Mocha, like that sort of that sort of that sort of world is part of our world and I don't think I think that a lot of people think of it as being very separate and I think part of it is that I'm in North Brooklyn myself, but also part of it is just like when I look at it, I mean like when you look at Juxtapose magazine, it's started by a comics guy and uh I think he still runs, I think the same guy still runs it. And, you know, you still have that same sort of like post underground alternative USA comics thing. And then, um, and then, you know, that, that strong narrative work, such as like narrative illustration type of thing overlapping. Um, so it's all, it, it all kind of, it all feels as though it's part of the same thing. And then when they all get together, to partner up for a festival like this, you sort of see the connections more clearly. Like, yeah, this is all the same. We should all be part.
part of the same, um, not style. That's not the right word. This, the same, the same vibe, the same community of overall overarching aesthetics. Same umbrella would might be a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've had you on for quite a while. Um, you know, definitely don't want to, uh, keep you on for, uh, for too long. So, um, you know, before we, we completely wrap up the show, uh, we, we always like to give, uh, our guests time to be able to pitch their stuff and get people to, uh, to find them online. I know you've got something that, you know, you probably want to promote and, website, social network, and all that. So the floor is yours to, to help promote whatever you would like to promote. Okay, so I'm all over the Internet. Uh, for comics, right now I'm focusing most of my energy on Little Garden, which is a comic and art and overall sort of visual experience that is currently manifested as a four-panel comic strip at littlegardencomics.com and um, you can also uh, support it on Patreon where I am currently. I've just started Patreon recently and I'm kind of getting the hang of it. Uh, I'm at Daryl Io, one word, on that site. And I'm at Daryl Io basically everywhere. Daryl Io on Tumblr, Daryl Io on Twitter, Daryl, uh, no, uh, Let's Go IO on Facebook and, um, and, um, after that, just, uh, you see me at a comic show, I probably have mini comics in my bag, so, uh, if you see me and recognize me, ask about it. Um, I started a blog with some friends of mine a few years ago, L. Nichols and Kevin Chapieski, uh, called Comics Cube. Uh, there's already a blog called Comics Cube, but ours is spelled comics with an X. Um, anyway, um, that's where I did the majority of my critical writing and reviewing, and most of that stuff is still up there. And let's see here, oh, jack of many trades. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Little Garden Comics, great stuff in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, folks should absolutely check that out. Um, well, thanks, thanks for coming on the, the show. We really appreciate you having on. Uh, it's been great chatting with you, and um, you know, going for uh, an extended amount of time is always appreciated, especially when it flows and we get some interesting conversations like we've had. Well, thank you. I I could go on for days. So uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and definitely uh, I will uh, make sure to introduce myself when I uh, hopefully catch you at a a show in the future. So, uh, folks, definitely go and uh, check out Daryl's comics, littlegardencomics.com. You can go and and find it now and make sure to say hi and say we sent you to him when you see him at a show. So, Daryl, thank you for coming on. Uh, Much appreciated, as always. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so that's going to wrap up our uh, latest episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Um, thanks so much for sticking through and listening. Well, hopefully you got a little education and had uh, some entertainment at the same time. You can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Uh, of course, we're on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, 
uh, all at Graphic Policy. We keep it nice and consistent. You can find us all over there. Uh, for those who may came in late or want to re-listen to the episode, uh, the archive will be up on uh, Blog Talk Radio uh, a little bit after we, we wrap up. It'll also be getting pushed to, to iTunes, um, Stitcher, I think, is one, and then I'll probably be up on SoundCloud tomorrow. Uh, and then post it to the site, uh, an archive of that a little bit, so you can uh, catch us on the go and take us and listen to us uh, where is convenient. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, without you, the audience, there really wouldn't be much reason to do this. It would just be two crazy people talking to each other. Uh, so thanks for listening, as always. Uh, we'll be back next week. We've got another guest. We've got a string of awesome guests over the next couple weeks. Uh, next week is David F. Walker, uh, hot writer right now. He's uh, kind of one of the writers out there. He's currently writing uh, Cyborg for DC Comics. He's also recently announced doing Pir- uh, Power Man and Iron Fist for Marvel Comics that will be out next year. Uh, the trade paperback of his uh, recent Shaft run came out, I believe, last week from Dynamite Comics. Uh, so you can catch that as well. We're going to be talking about his career, about uh, Cyborg, tons of stuff. It's going to be really, really cool. I think lots of fun. Um, so catch us next week. We're going to be back at same time, same channel, uh, 10 p.m. on Monday. So uh, listen in and uh, yeah, join us then. If you've got questions for David, you can always tweet them to us beforehand, and we'll ask them during the show. Uh, but again, thank you for listening. This has been Graphic Policy Radio. I'm Brett. Until next week. Keep it geeky.